um, what, what ending would you pick? Uh, what would you want to leave your readers with to sort of capture and embody the essence of what this book of the Bible is trying to get across? Now, if like most of us, you're an American, uh, you would probably default towards something like, well, I would write a really hopeful conclusion. After all, this has been a book of laments. It's, all been, it's been all about giving a voice to our sorrows and how to do that well and how God meets us in that. It's been good, but it's been kind of heavy. And so, man, wouldn't it be great to end on kind of an up note after all, right? Um, we like hope as a culture. After all, America is essentially the culture that invented the phrase happily ever after. Um, we love happy endings, and we love seeing everyone get one. To us, that's emotionally satisfying. That is a good, strong ending. The book of Lamentations, however, ends a little bit differently. It ends with God's suffering people reaching up to him for salvation. There's, there's a hopefulness of, and, a, and a plea to restore but it, it also ends with God's people uncertain as to whether they're actually going to see God's salvation in this lifetime. And that, that kind of leaves us as readers in kind of a somewhat ambiguous place. We're like, I, I'm, I'm not really sure what, what to do with that. And I think that somewhat ambiguous place that it leaves us in is part of the powerful and honest message of this book. We started just a few Sundays ago looking at this Old Testament book of Lamentations. Um, it is a, a collection of five lament poems, one in each chapter, that God put in the Bible specifically uh, because it helps validate lament in the Christian life. It helps us understand as followers of God what it means to give voice to the difficult things we're dealing with. It also helps us to do that well, because there's ways to do that well and ways to do that more poorly. And then our special focus this morning, it finally helps us help one another Lament well as a church body, which is one of the greatest gifts that we can give to one another. We saw these four main lessons that came out of this book of Lamentations that we emphasized one each week. Chapter two, a few weeks ago, we saw that sorrow should be expressed to God. That's part of his design and why he puts laments in the Bible. Chapter three, we saw that Christian grief and sorrow is always anchored in hope. There's a tremendous hopefulness there. And then last week in chapter four, we saw that that hopefulness doesn't change the fact that it's still grief and that it's still sorrow. Grieving with hope is still grieving. And today we focus on the, the last and final point that comes from this book of Lamentations. And that is that the ultimate place of rest for a hurting human heart is not a quick fix or an explanation, but rather it's in the person of Christ himself. That's the, that's the point that this last chapter makes really strongly, I think, as it closes out the book of Lamentations. So if you've got your Bibles open, Lamentations chapter 5, we're in the fifth and final poem of these five that we're going to conclude this morning. And we notice immediately in reading through it, which we'll do here in just a moment, that there's a couple things about this fifth chapter that stand out as very different from the four that had come before it. First of all, uh, it has a very different setting. You remember the historical setting of the Book of Lamentations was that the Babylonians had come in in the 6th century B.C. and annihilated Israel, destroyed Jerusalem. Lots of people died, horrible suffering. Many of the survivors were carted off to Babylon as exiles. And those that were left 
uh, in what was at one point the promised land, had just lived a destitute life. And the previous four chapters had really focused on that, that siege and the, the fall of Jerusalem and the immediate aftermath of it. Chapter 5 is a little bit different in that it is set sometime after the siege. In fact, it doesn't really have a clear definitive time frame attached to it. It starts looking beyond the immediate um, effects of the siege and the fall of Jerusalem into like, what does life look like now as we move forward into an uncertain future? It describes the destitution and hardship of those who had survived the original invasion And in looking forward, the main body of this poem, which is the first uh, 20 verses, there's actually 22, we'll talk about the conclusion here in just a minute, but the main body of the poem is in the first 20 verses, and they are bookended by two pleas, two cries out to God to answer, because the state of affairs that the poem is describing have been going on so long, and it doesn't look like they're going to change. You see those two pleas uh, in verse uh, 1. And then also in verse 19 and 20. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. It's a very familiar kind of lament prayer to God. God, look at what's going on with us. But this is actually just one bookend of the rest of the poem. And then the other one comes in verses 19 and 20. You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. God, you're omnipotent. You're all-powerful. So, verse 20, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? These two verses sort of form the brackets around um, the description of what life has been like for a long period of time after the siege. This isn't just a short-term painful time that God rescues his people from as soon as they repent and get their act together. And then he sort of returns them to a normal that's full of ease and pleasure. We would like that to be the case. That's not so much the case here. The, The focus is saying, hey man, pain and difficult suffering for God's people can go on for a long, long time. And the Bible's honest about that. So with those two sort of bookends of crying out to God, why have you let this go on so long? We look at the 18 verses in the middle that describe the state of affairs. And what we find here, once again, is fairly different in how it's put together than the other four chapters before it. Verses 2 to 19 are a a rapid-fire, staccato sort of series of laments just describing how hard life has been. And they don't follow the same uh, rhyme and reason and meter that the previous poems had. All of that is gone, and we just get this boom, 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 boom list of complaints. And what we see here is not just that life is hard, but the important thing to notice in this from the perspective of the Bible is that life that's being described here in Lamentations chapter 5 is exactly the opposite of everything God promised his people that they would have if they loved him and served him. This is the total opposite of all the covenant blessings that he promised earlier in the Old Testament. You see that right away. Verse 2, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers and our homes to foreigners. You remember what the the promised land even was. It was the land God promised to give to his people to take it away from godless, sinning foreigners who lived there and to give it to his people. And God did that. 
And now here they are, generations later, and God is taking it away from his people and giving it back to godless, sinning foreigners. It's the total undoing of the covenant blessing. Verse 3, we've become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water that we drink. The wood that we get must be bought. All the abundant resources of the promised land are gone that land flowing of milk and honey. They can't grow food. They don't have strength left to do it. They have to buy and beg for everything. Verse 5, our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary and we are given no rest. God had promised his people security from their enemies, peace and stability and national security. All of that is completely gone. There is no rest. They're constantly dogged by those who are their enemies. We've given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we now bear their iniquities. He's not so much saying here that they are being punished for what their predecessors had done. In fact, he makes it clear in verse 16, we'll see in a minute, that they themselves have sinned. What he's simply saying is he's lamenting that we, as God's people, were not God's people. Part of the covenant blessing, God says, is that you will be my people and I will be your God. You will be close to me and it's going to be a great relationship. And in verse 7, they're acknowledging that's not the case. We're not your people and we never have been. We never have been. Our fathers sinned too and they messed it up. They're dead and gone and here we are continuing to live apart from God and his blessings. Verse 8, slaves rule over us and there is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is as hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Verses 11 and 12 bemoan the total lack of civil society and justice. Women, verse 11, are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands and no respect is shown to the elders. These verses are lamenting that there is no justice, that there is no more society, there's no court system, there's no police. So there's nobody to protect women from sexual assault. And it's happening with these foreigners that are coming in and people are being raped and there's nobody for them to turn to. The, the princes, the people who would rule over, who would enforce justice, are strung up by the Babylonians for sport and killed. They're dead and gone and mocked. And the old men who would sit in the city gates and render judgments in the context of their society back then, like they're, just, they're gone, they're nowhere to be seen. There's nobody that the uh, hurting or vulnerable person has to appeal to. There's no higher authority. All the security and peace that God had promised is gone. Young men, verse 13, are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. <laughs> the few young men and boys who grew up and were not carted off or killed in the battle are forced into slave labor. They can't defend themselves, build their own homes, protect their families. Verse 14, we saw this a moment ago. The old men have left the city gates. The young men have left their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased and our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. And for this, our heart has become sick. And for these things, our eyes have grown dim. There's no more joy in life for them. 
The siege presumably had happened some time ago. They've just been trying to get by as best they can. And this poem steps back and says, it's, it's, it's hard. It's not getting any better. Everything that we were promised by God, if we were faithful to him, we haven't been faithful and neither were our fathers. And so we've lost it all. All of God's covenant blessings are undone. Life is incredibly hard in the promised land. And you know, it would be great if we could know for certain that God would take our pain away and fix our problems if we just trust him. That sermon preaches. That's a good ending. That's well received. I can't say, according to the Bible, that it's true all of the time. Not that God never does that. Sometimes he does take away great amounts of pain, and we rejoice, rightly so, when the person with the serious diagnosis suddenly finds health and life, perhaps even to the amazement of the doctors. When the person whose business is going through a difficult time suddenly has business pick up and they can pay their bills again, we rejoice. When the relationship that looked like it was dead to rights, when God changes hearts and there's reconciliation, these things happen. And man, we celebrate them when they do. God does sometimes fix our problems if we trust him but sometimes he doesn't. You see, this poem is trying to be honest and say sometimes we can, a Christian, a good, faithful, committed to God, Christian can be in pain and difficult circumstances for a long, long time. That's the total opposite of the prosperity gospel that is so prevalent in our country where so many of these guys with best-selling books get on their stages and they basically say, God wants you to be happy and if you just trust him, all of your life is going to be wonderful. Your dreams are going to be fulfilled. Your money is going to be abundant. You'll have everything you ever want. You'll have good feelings all the time. And they sprinkle in enough Bible verses, almost all of them pulled out of context, to try to convince us that that's the Bible's message. And of course, the problem is when my life doesn't turn into that fairy tale, I start to think God hates me or something's wrong with me. But the Bible gives us something much more solid than all that. The sobering reality that even if I'm faithful to God, things can be hard for a long time, which doesn't mean there's necessarily anything wrong with my faith. It just means sometimes that can happen. The Israelites of this day had no promise, no reason to hope that God would change their situation for the better within their lifetimes. And we actually now know today from looking back in history that he, in fact, didn't do that. Not during their lifetimes. So the poem wrestles with that. Um, there's, there's this, like, what, do, what do we do with that kind of long-term, uncertain, God, where are you in this sort of thing? I mentioned a moment ago that there's a break uh, from some of the structural things that we talked about so much the first Sunday a few weeks ago. We pointed out that, that the first four poems are all acrostics. Every verse started out with a different letter, a sequential letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You don't see that in these English translations because these poems are originally written in Hebrew. But this very careful structure whereby the poet is like using all the A to Z, as it were, of human language to explore the reality of pain and suffering. And this fifth poem completely gives up on that. There's no acrostics here. There's no rhyme or reason at all to how the verses start and what letters they start with, which is striking because it's so different than everything that came before it. 
We also talked about the poetic meter, the limping meter, if you were here a few weeks ago, that these poems all follow. It's a very easily detected thing in the original language. That meter is gone. This poem does not follow that meter either. It's, It's... striking how different it is. We've come to expect by reading these other poems, we know what we're going to get in chapter 5, and then chapter 5 is totally different. And in all of this, the point is that like, it's almost as if the poet has essentially kind of, he spent himself, and he's kind of giving up trying to make full sense of all of the pain. Like he knows it's their fault. He already said that in verse 16, we sinned. He knows it's their father's fault. He knows the ultimate hope of restoration is, is, at the end of the day, it's in God's hands, not their hands, which is why he cries out in verse 21, restore us to yourself, O Lord. But the bottom line is, it's been so long, and he's just not really sure God's going to fix it in this life, which leads to the ending of the poem, verses 21 and 22. It's kind of an open-ended and unresolved ending. Verse 21, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. That's it. That's the end. That's the end not just of this fifth poem. That's the end of the entire book. <laughs> well, well, is God exceedingly angry? <laughs> I mean, is he totally rejected his people or not? That's the point. From the perspective of the people at the time, they're like, we don't know. <laughs> We're holding on to your steadfast love as a true principle of, of your character, God, but in our experience, we don't know if you're going to fix this, and we're just in this unresolved place, and that's where the poem ends. That's where the whole book ends. In fact, it's so unsatisfying that many times in in Jewish circles, when they read the book of Lamentations uh, throughout history, which they do in some of the the festival days, they would repeat verse 21 at the end of the poem because it creates a more satisfying resolution. So they would read it, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, so that we may be restored and renew our days as of old. Oh, well, now that's got a little bit of hope to it, right? Can can you just sense that? That kind of feels better as an ending. But you know what? That's not where the book actually ends. It deliberately ends on sort of an open-ended, uncertain place of not knowing whether God will deliver his people despite their plea. And I think there's an important point here that God has been making throughout this entire series. It's worth remembering. And that is that at the end of the day, There is a mystery to suffering that can't, in the final analysis, be completely tamed by rational explanations. And God acknowledges that. Like, the the poet's like, having exhausted all of his, you know, A to Z of human language and all his best efforts, he doesn't complete the fifth poem and sort of stand back and look at the whole thing and say, there, (laughs) I've I've had it out with God, I've, I've done my theology, I've done my praying, I've been honest, and, and now I'm finally at peace because having looked at all of our problems from start to finish and having gotten a, a really solid answer from God, I now know why all this is happening so I can be okay with it. 
As much as that would feel good if that was the place where the poem ends, it's not really very realistic. I mean, after all, what possible answer could God give to the question of verse 20? Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? God, why are you letting this go on, right? That's the, that's the, the ultimate, the protest, the question that's in these lament poems. And what possible answer, what possible rational explanation could God give that would make the poet say, oh, okay, now I'm all right with people starving to death. Now it's okay to see rape go unpunished, to see children dying and begging for bread in the streets. Like, there, at some level, you can't get enough why questions to, to, to be at peace with that. If, if I'm seeking in my heart to be at peace with suffering because of an answer to a why question, I'm going to be grasping at wind. And so the final resting place is not a thorough answer to the question of verse 20 that ties up the poem in a neat bow. We've seen through Lamentations, though, is the poet reaching up to what he knows of God's character, his steadfast love of chapter 3. And he's seen God's character displayed in their own history, uh, most notably in the Exodus, where God took them as a people who deserved nothing and rescued them from Pharaoh and parted the Red Sea and sent them into the Promised Land. He's like, we know you love us, and so we're going to continue. We've seen this repeatedly throughout the book. We're going to continue to hold on to that truth because we've seen you do it in our history. And so they point not so much to a rational explanation, but the book points us to the love and the character of God as he's demonstrated it in history. And friends, today we have an even more potent picture of the steadfast love of God than people did back in Jeremiah's day when Lamentations was being written 2,600 years ago. We look back not so much on a parted Red Sea, but we look back on God made flesh. A savior king who himself suffered so that suffering would not have to write our final story. Jesus Christ, as God in human flesh, knows what it feels like, uh, what it's like to feel the crushing weight of despair that comes when you're like, I can't do this anymore. Have you ever been at the total end of yourself? And you're just like, God, I, I can't keep doing this. And as Jesus prays and sweats drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, begging, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. He knows what that's like. Jesus knows by experience what it's like to suffer physically, to suffer emotionally, to be abandoned by friends as he was in the garden, and to even suffer spiritually and feel like God is not there as he screams on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what that aloneness is like. And he also knows by experience what it means to put his ultimate hope and resurrection life in the future rather than a quick fix for now. As the book of Hebrews chapter 12 tells us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So you see, when God says to us, stay faithful and put your heart in the hope of heaven and that, that it will be all worth it when you get there, he's not telling us to do anything he does not understand himself because he's done it. He's done it. He's been there. And so the point of this is that the ultimate resting place for the human heart isn't in a rational explanation 
although there is a lot of good answers the Bible gives us as to what God does with human suffering, and those are helpful things to know. But the ultimate resting place of the human heart is suffering is not there, nor is it in a quick fix, although sometimes those occur, and we rejoice when they do, when the sick person gets well, and the person in hard circumstances comes through it. The ultimate resting place for the hurting human heart is not an explanation or a fix. It's in a person. It's in a person. It's in God himself laying aside immortality so that he could enter into the suffering and experience the, uh, the, the impacts of our brokenness himself and then rise to a totally free and joyful life on the other end. And then he tells us as his sons and daughters, now you go do likewise. We have God's Spirit in us and His people around us to help us in this calling. And so I want to close out this morning and and actually this whole study of the book of Lamentations, much the way we did last Sunday. If you were here, I had a couple friends come up on the platform and just have a conversation about this. And I'm going to do the same thing this morning with a couple of other friends. So if Kurt and Amy would come on up here, we're just going to talk a little bit, not really as um, know-it-all experts or anything, but just want to invite you into a conversation that the three of us are going to have um, and just have you sort of be a part of it. And we're really just going to wrestle through, like, what do we take away from this book and this study as people? And how can we help one another um, lament well? Let me make sure that's on. There you go. And just in case, that one's always on because it's wired. (laughs) Tell us, for those that don't know who you are, who you are. Let's start there. Well, I am Kurt Free. Uh, I've been attending Harvest for... Oh, four or five decades. <laughs> because I'm the old guy that Matt was talking about last week. And Aaron was talking about. Aaron is my pipsqueak nephew. <laughs> uh, and I'm a, a psychologist in the, in the area. You were able to walk up here under your own power. That was good. I'm impressed. Yeah, by the way, uh, Matt didn't tell you the rest of the story. You know, last we don't week have time he for that. said that Matt was up in the front and I was way in the back and I'm not listening to him like usual. And uh, I happened to be in the back. I actually uh, stopped and uh, recognized that Matt was staggering, so I was praying for him back there. <laughs> and that is why, with uh, more divine energy, you made it. I appreciate that. I think we need to hear from somebody else. (laughs) I am Amy Garino, so I am Matt's wife. Um, What you may not necessarily know about me, the main reason I'm up here to say anything around this is I struggle with chronic pain ever since we got married. And... (laughs) Still trying to figure out if there's a causal connection. Not sure. (laughs) I don't believe so, dear. But I'm also someone who has a very expressive personality, and so I process things verbally and need to get it all out as well as, you know, so that just tends to be very messy with a lot of words and a lot of feelings. So he's had to deal with a lot of my lamenting. (laughs) And we all do. So the real focus of this conversation is just for us to talk a little bit about what we've learned or discovered about how we can help one another lament well, especially if we're not the person in the midst of pain, but we know somebody who is. And I get that question a lot. In fact, Kurt, let me start with with you, and we'll just kind of ask anybody who wants to to jump in whenever, but I want to start with you here. Um, 
Because the question I get from a lot of people in our church is, I know somebody's hurting, I want to help, I don't know what to do, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing, so I don't say anything. And I'm just not, maybe, maybe somebody else should handle it, you know, a pastor, a counselor, that, you know, somebody needs to help them because they've got pain and I just, that's sort of above my pay grade. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, as somebody who actually helps people with this professionally on a daily basis, um, what kind of support, what does a support network in a church look like? How can we walk toward one another in pain? Yeah, that's a very good point, and um, it's, it's actually a good start to be able to say, man, I don't know if I have any answers. Mm -hmm. That's actually a very good start, because if you think you do know the answer, that's a bad start, <laughs> you know. Um, but I would say, you know, you know as, a, as a person who talks to people all the time, many of them are lamenting, I have with them one hour a week. That's 168 hours in a week. I have one. What is a person supposed to do with the other 167 hours? And that's where the rest of us come in. And so I always ask, what, what are your supports? You know, who, who's in your life? Do you go to a church? Are they supportive to you? Do you talk to anybody? Because they, they need somebody else to talk to. Um, I, I can't do it one hour in, uh, you know, in, a, in a week. It needs a lot more than that. I actually say to people, do you have at least one, if not two or three people that you can talk to honestly on a regular basis besides uh, me and make a pact with them. Say to them, can I talk to you with some frequency, but you have to promise me for me to trust you. You have to promise me that you will tell me if this is not a good time to talk to you or you don't have the time or the energy because I don't want to be a burden. Mm -hmm. So if I'm one of those people, because, you know, I've often thought 80 or 90 percent of the real counseling um, that needs to be done in a church can and should be done by all of us. Like, we're capable of that. I mean, there are some times people really need to talk to a professional about a deep issue or a complicated issue, but um, we can walk toward this. So let's maybe unpack that a little bit. Um, often... I feel, and I think other people feel, if I'm reading between their lines correctly, that, well, okay, I'm willing to walk toward, but what if they ask me a question, I don't know, what if they're in pain, and I can't, I can't fix that? Is that our goal? Is that the job? No. <laughs> okay, <Your turn>. thanks. <laughs> it isn't our job to, to fix it. I mean, um, and that's, again, the bad start. I, I get that we all want to do that. You know, we all want to give an answer. But our main task is to be a compassionate listener, to actually listen to somebody talk about what's going on with them and to put ourselves in their shoes and go, like, wow, I can understand how come they're thinking what they're thinking and feeling what they're feeling. That goes a long way, the being with quality. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that you end up facing is when you're listening to somebody in their pain, you're dealing with your own feelings of their pain and you're having to make a choice to be okay with them and not judge them, not criticize them and just walk toward them. Be a presence that's with them in it. And so with that is you are going to get kind of messy and emotional with it. But if your mindset is not about yourself and what you're feeling about this at the moment, but how can you be a blessing and just kind of love and be with them? Um, that helps me feel like it's not my job to fix or make them even feel better in this moment. It's, I get the privilege of just kind of sitting with and being in it. Um, and once I can turn off my stuff and just be very focused on them, it ends up being a lot easier. So now we have a phrase in our home. I want to ask you this. Um, 
that uh, is loosely based on the book of Job. I think you were the first one that used it and sort of caught on, so it's kind of become a thing in our home. And the phrase is, words to the wind. And it kind of relates to what you're talking about. Like, what do we mean when we say that, and how does that help us approach people? Yeah, what we mean is, I will say things that I don't ultimately really believe or mean doctrinally or even positionally, but it's what I'm feeling at the moment. So stuff comes out, and it comes from Job 6.26, which says, do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? Job is reproving his friends because you're not listening to me. I needed somebody to just hear what I'm thinking and feeling and not take too seriously. That's the let the words blow away with the wind and give them grace. If I'm going to offer God's love and grace, my goodness, he sees and deals with a lot of people's pain and hurt and railing. Why can't we do a little of that for one another? And you let the words kind of go with the wind. And in a day or two, I may go, oh, I'm so sorry I said that. I really didn't mean that. That's not what I ultimately believe, but it is definitely what I felt at the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, in my experience... Um especially with us at home, but even with other people too, it is often not even a day or two. <laughs> Sometimes it's 30 minutes later, I kind of got it all out. And then it might be you or somebody else like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I didn't mean that. And you're like, you know, you're fixing yourself. And I'm like, well, I'm glad I didn't jump in and try to fix it because that wouldn't have worked. I've tried that before. It hasn't worked. <laughs> it's a part of the processing. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a part of the processing. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, the more upset we are, the more we say things that are an attempt to try and get our arms around and convey to the other person how badly we're feeling. So we, we use poetic kinds of words, we use metaphorical words, you know, we use hyperbole, we're just way over the top. And, and then the, the listener gets anxious about that, like, you know, when somebody says, I just wish I was dead, it's like, so I take that literally because I just got really nervous right at that moment. I take that literally or is that a figure of speech meaning life is so painful, I just want this pain to go away. So of course you're saying, what am I supposed to say to a person then? You go, it does sound really difficult. And then see what happens next, you know, that kind of thing. Um, try very hard to consider yourself to be a big container and you're just letting them pour into it and it isn't your job to somehow make a great stew out of it. Hmm. Yeah, good. So we've talked a lot so far about what it looks like maybe to meet one another when we're in pain and not rush too quick to fixes. At the same time, let's shift gears a little bit because we ultimately don't want to stay stuck in a place of pain, whether we're the ones in pain or if I've got a brother or sister in Christ. I do want to help them reach up to God for hope. I do want to help them maybe kind of get through where they're at to the extent that I can. So understanding I can't fix it, and at the same time, how do we maybe um, graciously help others hold on to hope without sounding preachy um, or trite or just, you know, pray and trust God and I'm sure it'll work out well kinds of things that may kind of miss where they're at. What are some things you've experienced yourself or seen in other people where that's been done well? Uh, A helpful image that I have come across that kind of puts me in the right frame of mind is that it's better to light a candle than curse the darkness. Hmm. So the person you're sitting with often could be just cursing the darkness in the place that they're in. And I need to let the words of the wind, you know, go by. I need to listen long, whatever long means, however much time you have. But sometimes there aren't opportunities to really say anything into the pain other than 
Wow, that is really hard. I mean, you need to affirm the fact that what they're telling you is hard and you must be feeling and oh my goodness, I heard you say. So, you, you know, you're listening long enough to repeat back to them so that they can say, oh, this makes sense to this person. Um, and rather than, we're often tempted to relate to our own pain and struggle if we're not the counselor that's just having to, you know, that's their job. We want to, want to kind of share, oh, I get that because, but I have found the more I do that, because I can relate with lots of things, but the more I do that, it starts to almost invalidate what they're saying. And it's sometimes I found it more helpful saying something like, I can understand, rather than going into the because, but still focus on them. I heard you say this, and this is hard, but I really see you. And if you know the person, this is a chance to affirm. You draw them out, and then you try to affirm them. I see you enduring through this. And wow, that has got to be really hard, and I want to walk with you in it. How can I best help? And when you ask that question, you need to be willing to really hear the answer, even if at the time all you really can give is a listening ear. Maybe this, I really do need this physically done, or I could use a hug, or, you know, um, the ty types of things that they may actually answer you need to be willing to engage with or seek to find someone else to help is some other things. And then finally, I... Other than trying to share your own personal story, if you can, the focus on lighting that candle. I mean, the source of life is God himself and pointing back to Christ. Often through their listening, where I'm listening long, I'm praying, asking the Lord, is there something I should share that comes straight from you that either you have touched me with lately or a hymn or a song, something that wouldn't necessarily be trite, but that's what I'm asking the Lord. You've got a guide on this. But a phrase that I'll often say, even before I share anything, is a padding. I, this may not be helpful to you. It really has touched me a lot lately. And so here's this verse, like in Isaiah 41.10, fits every situation, because it's God talking in his voice, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. I've used that a lot to just say, listen to God talking to you, and wow, there's a promise that he'll be with you in this. It's touched me so much. It may not you, and I'm sorry, but could I pray with you now to, you know, and if they said, no, I don't want it, you know, you're just sensing all of that, and yes, those are risks, mm -hmm. but I find those can be worth taking. Yeah, especially with that kind of, hey, this, I don't know, I'm not saying it, this has just been helpful to me, right. and kind of take some of that pressure off. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, and I would agree with that. The, that phrase, this has been helpful to me, and it may or may not for you, um, but can I share it with you, gives them permission to say mm -hmm. yes or no. Right. And I think another thing about that is that hope isn't just what happens at the end of the story, you know, whether that's the end of our life or the end of our illness or the end of something or other. It's hope in the meantime. You know, so part of hope in the meantime, besides saying things like, oh man, I really understand how difficult this is and it doesn't seem like it's ever going to get any better, just saying that is providing kind of a perspective for the situation and then you can go from there. But it's also saying, like you were alluding to, and is there anything I can do for you now? Um, do you, you know, do you want someone to come sit with you? Do you want to go out for coffee? Do you, uh, you know, want me to pray for you? There's a variety of things like that because lamenting doesn't mean feeling terrible all the time. I mean, there, there has to be some time when you feel less than awful. And that might mean, you know, 
Well, I don't drink coffee, but some people tell me that, you know, coffee makes them feel better. Well, I don't have a cat. Some people tell me cats help you feel better. <laughs> <laughs> but um, do something, you know, and that's helpful to them that helps them get out of that hard spot mm -hmm. in very practical ways. Mm -hmm. That's part of the being with, too. Yeah. So good. I would actually love to ask three or four more questions, but we're out of time. So I want to encourage, thank you guys, and just encourage us all to continue these conversations with one another. How can we help one another as a church lament well? Uh, and I really appreciate both of you taking the time to kind of help us think through that a little bit. Here's what we're going to do as we end our service now. We've got, we're going to create some space within our worship service to come before God and be a joyful uh, appropriately lamenting people, joyful because we approach the God who made a way for us to be with him for all eternity, and the God who is the ultimate answer to our suffering. We're going to do that by receiving communion, and so what I'd like to do is ask the worship team to come on up here, and let me just mention that how we do this is there's uh, a couple of tables set in the front, and a couple in the back, there's also one up on the balcony, and in just a minute, the worship team is going to be in playing some music. We're just going to have... Um, a brief period of just kind of quiet, reflective time. I'd encourage you to just close your eyes if you want to block out, maybe process, maybe just pray silently where you're at and sort of meet God uh, where you're at there. If there's sin the Lord prompts you to confess, just do that silently right there, confess that sin. And then you'll be able to come forward and receive the communion elements. Draith will let us know uh, when that happens. Music will be playing, and we would invite everybody who is a Christian, who's placed your faith and trust in Christ, to come forward and receive these communion elements at any time during the three songs that will be playing. Uh, Communion is a way, the Bible says, of announcing that I am relying on the body and blood of Jesus to forgive my sins. In other words, it's a way of saying I'm a Christian. So if that's not a decision you've made, we encourage you to just stay in your seat. That's totally fine. But if you're a Christian, we want to invite you to then come forward and receive communion. And let's approach the communion table, not only thanking Christ for his death on our behalf, but specifically thanking him for entering into suffering for us so that we have a high priest who's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who understands in every way the burdens we bear and has given us himself as the ultimate act of love where we can rest our hearts. Let me pray for our time, and then we're going to have a moment of just kind of quiet reflection, and then Drath will let us know when to get up and come forward. Father God, thank you so much for the time that you've given us to be here. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the honesty in the book of Lamentations, where you give us real hope, but you also deal very honestly with what it's like to be in the midst of difficult circumstances, some of which can go on forever. God, I pray for hurting souls that are in this room right now who are looking for desperately for some hope. I pray that you would reveal yourself to every person as the ultimate resting place for the hurting human heart, that you died so our sins could be forgiven, we could be reunited with you, experience your spirit in us, and ultimately experience life with you for all eternity. God, that is our hope, and I pray that you would ignite the flames of those hope in our hearts this morning, that you would blow wind into some limp sails, that you would kindle some dying flames in the hearts of people here to hope in Christ and what you are. And as we come to the communion table now, we exalt you, our suffering Savior King, for being the Savior of the world and the source of our hope. Receive our worship now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.